singularity. We're here today at the home of Natasha Vitamore, and the reason why I was so eager to come and visit her, besides having the pleasure of being together with her, is so that he, she can perhaps share a little more about the very interesting project, Home Body Prosthesis, which she recently presented at the Global Future 2045 conference at New York City. So Natasha, would you mind telling us a little bit more about your project? The project is basically looking at the human body as a whole body prosthetic. And there's two reasons for this. First off, the human body certainly can regenerate a certain amount of times until the cells die off. And we will have interventions genetically, genomically, uh, nanomedicine, other different methodologies that would extend the lifespan of cells. However, we may want to have a whole body prosthetic as a backup system. We're talking about backing up the brain, so why not back up the body itself? If we do have a different type of body, such as my future body design, uh, platform diverse, substrate, autonomous body, then we could feasibly upload our brains or back up our brains into a computational system and also download it into a physical material body. So here we're looking at real-time, physical material time, and also nonlinear time, which would be artificial, cybernetic, or uh, synthetic virtual um, agents in, in different environments. So it's to secure life, personhood, over time. Mm -hmm. So you opened this an enormous variety of interesting details that I want to explore further. But let me start before that, perhaps a little bit with the history and the motivation behind the project. Why should we do a whole body prosthetic? Why should we back up the body? Isn't just backing up the mind sufficient? I don't think so. There is this postmodernist notion that uh, if we do upload or back up the brain and exist in a computational uh, system or another type of substrate other than biological, that we will be disembodied agents. We mm -hmm. won't need a body. Mm -hmm. And I, I have a difference of opinion here. Our sensorial aspect of our perception is so vitally important to us. As animals, we have audition, we have our olfactory sense, our visual sense, uh, our kinetic sense. The methods in which we search through the environment, explore, enhance our thinking, enhance our perceptions, and then we start our cognitive processes from the sensorial mix that we have in relationship to our environment. So if we do exist in a different type of system, for example, a different substrate or platform, mm -hmm. we have to have this awareness. We have to have this perceptual ability so we'll have new types of senses. And in order to have new types of senses, we will need some kind of vehicle to move about in to adhere to the environment for our perceptions. So in other words, you think that that kind of embodiment, physical embodiment, and, and or we are perhaps physically embodied intelligence is kind of crucial to our experience and to the way we perceive and engage the world. Yes, I do. I think that our embodiment is crucial to our awareness, our perceptions, our state of consciousness, our mind, and our cognitive decisions, our intellection. So um, imagine that if we exist in an upload state, say mm -hmm. in a singularity ups upload state, um, and we want to exist in the biosphere, how would we do it if we didn't have a body? Mm -hmm. Now, why on earth would we want a biological body at that point? We would want an avatar body, a mm -hmm. whole body prosthetic system that is more functional, more flexible, more durable, more sustainable than the biological body that we could uh, use as a vehicle 
in the biosphere. So we're looking at two different spheres, the biosphere, mm-hmm. the reality that we live in now with chronological time or linear time, and the cybersphere, which would be nonlinear time, exponential time, and we would have multiple different types of existences there um, based on uh, what type of environments we're existing in. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this, Natasha. That's a, obviously a very ambitious project. How do you envision, let's say, the ultimate final state of, of your project? How do you envision it? I envision it, well, that's called backcasting. And backcasting, you really have to know where you're going in order to look back over time to strategize how to get there. So what I envision for the future is a limitless lifespan. I'm not someone who is a proponent of immortality because I think immortality is an inaccurate term. Mm-hmm. Um, to live uh, for a radical amount of time, which would far exceed the human uh, biological lifespan, uh, would mean that we are we are involved in prolongevity. Now, that prolongevity, again, would have different types of environments to exist within. So we need to think about the continuity of identity over substrates, over platforms, and over time. Mm-hmm. So what is that continuousness of identity? How can we preserve it? How can we sustain it? So what I look for in the far future, I think that if the most consequential aspects of our wanting to enhance and live longer is ourselves, our mind, our consciousness, our cognition, our intellection, mm-hmm. our memories, everything that forms who we are as persons, that is what we need to protect. So the whole reason I've been involved in this project for a number of years is looking at how science and technology is advancing with the current trends and where we could be going. The ultimate is just to protect personhood and to give us an opportunity to shift, kind of like time shifting, there's shape shifters, but this Mm -hmm. would be time shifting Mm -hmm. through substrate and platform. And that's my reason, mainly in a nutshell, to sustain and protect personhood, our identity, ourselves, over time. And what do you say to critics who might say and challenge your final uh, claim of continuity of identity, who would say, well, the person that I was or that person, she or he is already dead. You know, the body's been buried. That person, that new embodied entity is not the original person. How do you prove the continuity of identity from one substrate to the next one? It's a very good question. The issue of self and identity has been a a long debated Mm -hmm. and researched um, concept, a philosophical concept, basically, Mm -hmm. because it's dealing with existence and knowledge of existence and what is life. Who are we? Uh, So that is in the the field of consciousness studies. It's very much explored. So from a philosophical point of view, we look at the continuity of identity. Um, from a scientific point of view, we look at the continuity of identity. And from a design-based point of view, we're looking at the continuity of identity. But they're different approaches. Design is looking at what methodologies can we use to not only protect identity, but to make it exciting and rich and innovative. Scientifically, it's looking at the issues of being able to prove over and over again that it is you. Mm-hmm. And in philosophy, it's, it's the theoretical philosophical perspective of continuity. Now, here is the issue. Are you the same person you wake up each morning after you go to sleep at night? Well, some say, yes, indeed you are. Well, are you the same person that you were at 10 years old or 7 years old or mm-hmm. 3 years old or 20 years old? 
Most people say, yes, I'm the same person because my memories form who I am. And I've grown in my life based on my experiences and trials and tribulations and joys and wonders of the years before and the days before and even the moments before. Mm-hmm. So that, again, is, is goes back to continuity. So it seems to me that this issue of continuity is consequential to um, life extension and personhood. I'm not sure that someone who is in their 40s who has gone through a paradigm shift in his or her life, uh, say life and death situation, a trauma or an exuberant joy, is actually the same person as as he or she was at 20. I would say that for me, I would say I'm nothing like I was even 18 or 19. Exactly. Actually, me and my wife, we were looking at some video from my high school graduation and she was telling me, if I had met you at that time, no chance. chance. So we develop our identity through our experiences and we um, hopefully gain wisdom over time and, and we try not to repeat the same mistakes. So we'd say that Basically, we become better people, I hope wiser so, yeah. people, more. and more generous and loving people. So as a teenager, not many of us were generous and loving and kind. We were you know, going through our hormones, and you know, high school is always very Obnoxious difficult. Obnoxious like I was, for example. <laughs> and most of us were. But still, the lessons we learned as teenagers helped to make us who we are today. So yes, I am indeed the same person, because and only because of the consequences of who I was and the decisions I made based on those consequences have formed who I am today. Now, looking at it side by side, this person, Natasha, at 18 is not the same Natasha as I am today. But again, it's those experiences and those trials and tribulations, those joys, all the circumstantial environmental issues form who I am today. So yes, I say I... Long and the short, bottom line, I am the same person. So let's say we accept that claim, but let me make it even more complicated. What happens if you multiply the final product by two or three? So instead of having one embodiment, you have three Natashas in the end. You have three identical copies. Which one is the Natasha? Well, that, when we get into the issue of copying and cloning, there is, they're all three Natasha because the moment you have a clone and you separate and have an experience, then you're, then you have a different mind. Mm-hmm. You have a different experience. But the issue here, as far as the future of a whole body prosthetic or an avatar, mm-hmm. um, looking at, um, robotics, AI, nanomedicine, um, genomics, um, any type of, uh, backing up system of the brain and emotions and, and sens- the sensorial mix. Here the issue is, will we want to just exist in one environment or another? Probably not, because already today we are now in the material physical world. Mm-hmm. But when we go into second life or any, any environments in, in the metaverse, we have avatars or other personas who have different types of experiences and we look differently. Yeah. So, for example, my view is that we will have multiple selves in multiple environments, but there would be the continuity there where one would be the principal and then you have sub-personas. And there's, um, I'm not a, a great science fiction reader. I've never really uh, focused too much on it because as a designer and artist and, and theoretician, I'm looking at hands-on experiences. Um, and science fiction is, is often a bit dystopic for me, even mm-hmm. though it's, it's it usually so exciting and brilliantly written. But there's one story I really loved and it's about having different types of, of uh, sub-personas. Mm-hmm. I think it was called Damons or Demons. Damon, Damons, Damons. But anyway, um, the story is called Aristoi. 
And it's at a time where you could have sub-personas in different environments. And I think that that really rung a bell for me because it made absolute sense that if we're going to exist in a computational system, whether it's a metaverse or very farly sophisticated 3D beautiful environment or, or, or stunning or even... Uh, not so beautiful environment, just different types of environments like we have today mm -hmm. in uh, the biosphere, that we would want to engage on different levels with different activities. It's a known fact that as far as psychology is concerned, we have different aspects of our persona. There's you, the worker, you, the sex object, you, the educator, you, the jokester, you, the, you know, person who's cooking dinner, all these different aspects of ourselves, and we bring them together to form our identity. Well, what if we could be one of one or any one of these different selves? What if I could be making love with my husband as the other part of me is, you know, professor in a university teaching some new ideas <laughs> in design, where another part of me is doing research off in India or, you know, China, or another part of me is at the gym working out, pumping iron. So there, even if we're thinking, we're, you know, even in a moment of thought, we have different aspects of our, our emotions and our thinking apparatus that, that, deal with us in different environments. So to make a long story short, it seems to me that we would want different types of bodies in different types of environments. However, to keep the identity, the continuity of identity, the person intact, to prolong the personhood, there would have to be a central organizing system. And I look at the body and I look at most aspects of life as a designer and thinking about systems, thinking systems analysis and the strategic application of systems analysis within it. The system we live in here has different types of variables that change. So if we have different systems in which we can exist, those systems would have to come together at some point and that would be the major identity. Mm -hmm. I feel like we can spend the whole week just talking on the philosophical issues and that's why I would like to move on beyond them um, and ask you a little bit more about the specific scientific benchmarks required to turn your project into reality because right now I think we're not quite there yet so how far do you think off into the future that it is and what are perhaps some of the scientific benchmarks that we need to pass through in order to get all the scientific know-how together so that we can realize this in in reality. I'd like to take this scientific benchmark concept and turn it into a scientific design-wise benchmark uh, because you, science is just science. It's a search for knowledge. But design is a process. Design is um, a practice that goes about solving problems and looking for the best possible um, way to solve a problem with a level of simplicity and complexity. So there's this simple, complex issue going on constantly. And design is an elegant way of thinking about the problem solving within those two variables, complexity and simplicity. Okay, so the benchmarks here would be in science to start with. It would have to deal with some notion of how we could back up the brain and what is mind, what is consciousness, and what is cognition and thoughts. And that's all in the areas of neuroscience and cognitive science and um, especially in psychology, which hasn't played a vital part yet, but I think it ought to be playing a, a more vital part than it, than it currently is. As far as the future is concerned, most of psychology is stuck in the past. Um, now, regarding design, some of the benchmarks there we've already seen, for example, uh, smart prosthetics, um, because of the, the major innovations in prosthetics over the past decade, we're seeing robotic prosthetics, we're seeing prosthetics with robotics and artificial intelligence, and we're seeing prosthetics with robotics, artificial intelligence, and sensing systems 
also connecting with the brain. So that if you had a prosthetic arm, for example, it could be wired up to your neural network and you could actually feel the sensation of picking up a book like my book here yeah. or reaching, you know, feeling the heat in a cup of coffee, for example, or a mm -hmm. cool lemonade drink. You could feel it, but you're picking it up and your mind is directing that. So here we have robotics, which is, is gonna, you know, made major marks as far as advances. And robotics is part of that prosthetic, which is part of building a whole body prosthetic. So the issues here are robotics, teaming up with artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence, also incorporating uh, neuro um, um, connections to understand what functions in the brain could actually be steering the um, prosthetic body. And even in there, a more knowledge about the senses, what we need to sense, what we want to sense, and how our senses actually direct the actions we take. Because you have impulses, and you have voluntary and involuntary actions, and often those are driven by senses rather than cognition. Mm -hmm. So it's a very interesting composition here. So um, we have, to, I mean, I think the brain is the, the quintessential area that needs developing the central nervous system, uh, the information that goes up and down our spinal cord and delivering data to the brain, our reaction, our, um, what makes us um, use certain fight or flight principles versus a empathic type of loving set of variables. So there's so much there. Bottom line, cognitive neuroscience. I think it all boils down to that because you can have a body without a brain, but you can't have a person without a brain. Mm -hmm. And um, there's certain different theories on consciousness and the mind and brain, etc. But if we look at it logically and from a scientific point of view, if the brain is the place that all of our cells go to when we're communicating and our actions stemming from it, then the mind has to be located in there and consciousness is aware in there. And if our memories are located in the brain, it's kind of the nexus of all the activity. Certainly this counters a lot of views on consciousness and I don't think that anyone has a definitive answer to this. I think we're still exploring, but I think we need to um, engage more and have deeper discussions on this. Yeah, I, I just interviewed Dr. Stuart Hameroff yesterday mm -hmm. at the University of uh, Arizona Medical Center. And he has this highly controversial theory about the importance of uh, the microtubules and how they are kind of quantum entangled. Uh, and that takes the neuroscientific uh, model that we are a straightforward classical computer, uh, which is the prevailing idea in the neuroscientific community at the moment uh, and sort of complicates it by several orders of magnitude because it's connecting it to quantum physics, to quantum yeah, mechanics. There's a, yeah, there's a trend in quantum physics and quantum mechanics that's neatly tied into consciousness studies and uh, uh, I value him a lot in, in his ideas and uh, I'll hope to be speaking at his next conference. It's interesting to me um, when I was working on my PhD my main advisor is very close to his work, and um, his name is Roy Ascot, and he's um, quite an astute thinker. Um, we differ greatly in our views on consciousness, and my opinion there is, let's have fun discussing it, let's argue, let's debate, you know, let's challenge each other. Um, quantum physics and quantum mechanics is, um, it's fascinating, um, but 
I don't think that it, it's going to solve the major problem because if you look at cybernetics and second order cybernetics, which I think is very important to this whole area, you, we are part of the system and we're helping to steer the system. But when you start getting to these other areas, there is no reality. What we see and everything around us is not here. So it's just perception is an illusion, and then you get back to Plato. So I am someone who is very much a materialist, and I'm a functionalist philosophically. And if the reason I want life extension is because I love life and, and I enjoy being alive so much and I value it more than anything, then that's a decision I made based on my materiality, my physicality. And looking at my future body design like prima post-human or platform diverse body or autonomous substrate body, any of these designs that I've come up with, you know, future look of who we could be and how we could function in, in these different environments, it's pretty much dealing with the material physical world. Even in a computational system, there is materiality there because codes are based on zeros and ones, and that is determined mathematically through a physical component. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about the PSI or these other areas, I'm not saying I don't agree with them or believe in them. I do in a way. I have a whole side of myself that is is separate, like meditation, um, practicing certain rituals, um, the... Um, when I was a performer, I did most of my performance, some on stage in Los Angeles, but a lot of it out in the environment with the environment. So there is this other element with the environment that is very interesting. And the unseen is also very fascinating. With our perceptions through our sensorial mix, we only gather a certain amount of data mm -hmm. because that's the limitation on our current human senses. What are we not gathering? What is there that we can't see, that we can't feel, that we... We can't know because we haven't experienced it. So I think there is something very rich there. And I think that um, it's a whole area that, that I care very deeply about, but it's not going to help us extend life. And I think the, the first most consequential thing to those of us who want to protect our lives and live longer is to figure out how we're going to do that. If you succeed in your project and you said at the same time you care, you care very much about that kind of other part of Natasha, then the question is, would you be able to capture the full Natasha, including that other Natasha, in the final Yes, project? definitely, because that other part of me is in my memories. If I thought it, it's there. Now, certainly there are diseases that come along, Alzheimer's, you know, senility, different mm -hmm. um, brain um, issues that, that cause us to lose certain memories and, and uh, abilities. Mm -hmm. That is an area that, that needs to be you know, considered highly in this, in this equation. So it's very important that we start thinking about our memories and you know, documenting who we are and what we value and um, think about ourselves, not in an egocentric way, but in a way of self-responsibility. So let me ask you how you see the timeline on this. Is it a 20-year project? Because skeptics would say, first, that could never be done. Or some others would say, well, maybe in a hundred years, maybe in 200 years, but we're certainly not close today. How do you see that? Is it a 20 year old project? Is it a 50 year project? A 200 year project? No, definitely. I think that we're going to see torso prosthetic replacement parts very soon. I think we're going to see, um, we've got the arms and legs. We have replacement organs. I think that we're going to actually be 
building bodies without even thinking that this is a transhumanist vision Mm -hmm. uh, because people want they'd rather have an implant or a transplant or a prosthetic part than you know not if you're injured or diseased so i think that it's going to be driven in large part by need people getting older people needing to have replacement organs replacement parts replacement limbs and i think it's going to be a natural progression the issue here the major issue is when can we back up the brain and will we be uploading into um, different environments? Now, the singularity is not going to happen in one vertical lift. It's going to be happening in surges. And there's a number of people who agree with this perception. It's not my... Uh, a number I of S-curves, yes. Uh, yeah, a number of S-curves. Or like Max Moore talks about the, the surges and, mm-hmm. and uh, Vinci calls, talks about well, maybe we won't even have a singularity. And then, of course, there's Ray Kurzweil's... Um, vertical liftoff. But those of us who've been talking about the singularity for many, many years, going back to the 1990s, have looked at it from a number of different perspectives. And basically, it's all about the computer gaining intelligence or consciousness awareness, or and or I should say, um, computer level intelligence far exceeding human level intelligence. So I don't think that humans would sit by passively and just go, okay, you, <laughs> bye-bye. I think that humans, uh, because we're very competitive creatures and we're very inventive and innovative creatures, and we will do anything at the last minute to save the lives of the people we love as well as ourselves. So it makes sense that we would become the super intelligences. So that's my view anyway. And if that does happen, what's the 2030, 2040, 2050, it could happen any time around then. But that's not my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. And I'm not someone who likes to give predictions. What I do is I look at the trends where they're going, and I look at my work where it's going, and figure out um, something I call need finding. Where are the needs and how are they being met? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a transdisciplinary approach. So going back to the benchmarks, you know, cognitive science, neuroscience, understanding the brain, preserving the brain, backing up the brain, transferring the brain. Now with the body, whole body prosthetics is stemming from the different robotics, AI, um, connecting to the brain so that they're more, more motor activated. But the issue here is not just backing up the brain or whole body prosthetics. It's about values. Mm-hmm. There will be many people who want to stay biological humans. And they ought to have that choice. There'll be many people who want to stay in a transhuman state, and that ought to be their choice. And there'll be ones who want to upload and be posthumans and come back and be in a human body, um, a whole body prosthetic that is dealing in the biosphere, as well as a semi-biological body. So I think we're going to see a tremendous amount of variety so people will actually be exploring and living in different environments. Mm-hmm. So, Natasha, I, for one, entirely agree with you on the point that I hope... And I, I plan and count on that humans would not sit idly by while letting machines take over everything and, and pass us by in intelligence. And the only way to do that is to augment ourselves, whether cognitively or otherwise. So, and that brings us to the topic of transhumanism. Now, we did a special episode of Singularity One-on-One discussing about um, your latest book with Max Moore, The Transhumanist Reader. But I just want to ask, what has been the reception of the book? Because we haven't actually touched on that during the episode when we were introducing the book. How is the reception? Fabulous. Um, great feedback. Um, seems that the consensus is it's, it fills a much needed gap because it, it deals with the, the earliest essays, um, the seminal ideas that are now being talked about everywhere. So people can go back and read what was said early on and then compare it to 
what's being done today and find the links in information and knowledge. So I think it's really great. What I hope to see is that it um, start being used in different coursework, college, universities, even high school, mm-hmm. um, graduate studies, PhDs programs. So I think it's very exciting in that way. Is the world ready for this? Because that kind of connects dead on with the topic of your project. It's very ambitious. It's amazing. The question is, is the world ready for that kind of broad projects with daring, uh, you know, goals or not? I think so. I think that what we're seeing is this whole um, new phase of entrepreneurial looking at the world through um, decisive and meaningful innovations that are actually problem solving. And that's why I love design so much. We're looking not only at life extension and human enhance. We're looking at how to get clean water, how to desalinate water, mm-hmm. how to deal with, um, different environmental issues, you know, runaway fires, catastrophes, flooding, um, are, we're looking at going to the moon, back to the moon back to space, which is great. Space tourism has made a major turn recently. It was so hot in the 1980s, 1970s, and then it had a a dry spell. And now it's coming back uh, very strongly. So we're seeing innovations in a lot of different ways. But I think the most important thing here is that the entrepreneurs and innovators are looking at what the problems are and how to solve them. It's become um, an appreciation of Humanity. Another area that is paralleling is quantified self. Mm-hmm. And I run a quantified self group with um, mm-hmm. a friend, uh, Eric Heckler, um, here in the Phoenix, uh, Scottsdale area. And Eric has a great um, connection with his, you know, he teaches at one university and I teach at another. But it's, it's interesting to see all the people involved in bioscience and how they're coming together to talk about it. But that shows another trend in people wanting to look at their own bodies, their sleep habits, their eating habits, their exercise habits, their levels of happiness or depression or, you know, just anything that is, is something worth focusing on and, and learning about and resolving. So we have this trend about People wanting to help each other through entrepreneurial innovations and a trend towards people wanting to look more definitively at their own lives and issues about their lives. And we see that we have this growing baby boomers and they're going to be needing replacement parts. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised that if in 20, 30, 40 years from now, people actually had pretty much whole body prosthetics as humans, not as uploads. That's a whole nother thing. Mm-hmm. But I see the trend going in that way. Now, if we're able to back up the brain and transfer the brain into computational systems, then we'll see um, there'll be explorers um, going out and, and dealing with that. And that's a whole nother area. Mm-hmm. Because I have to say that I had very bad experience recently. I went to this uh, festival in Toronto where the alleged topic was immortality. And at the end of it, I kind of got a little bit annoyed and I said, well, all that I saw here, guys, was the wholesale condemnation of it because there was not one of the presenters who was pro. Yeah. Everybody who stood up and... That's a shame. That's that's a shame. And I got laughed down and almost booed and and everything along that way. And and I felt like I'm a total moron idiot sitting in, in an audience which totally thinks that that any of the ideas that I tried to put forward were absolutely either inconceivable or unworthy or ridiculous in so many ways. So I'm not sure personally, at least that's what happened there. I'm not sure if the 
the global world is ready for this. It depends on areas in the world. Certainly in Afghanistan and and, and Iraq and Iran and and Pakistan. I mean, maybe there's some problems there because they're dealing with their own internal religious conflicts and political conflicts. I was in Toronto, Canada, which is supposed to be very... Well, okay, now let's go back. Uh, I've been laughed off the stage in the 1980s and 1990s talking about radical life extension and people, you know, booing me or criticizing me. I was at the World Trade Center in Washington, D.C., giving a talk on whole body prosthetics and radical life extension in the 1990s. And there was a lot of discord, but one person, well, there were several people who loved it, but one person especially was a paraplegic. He was in a wheelchair and he said he hoped to have a whole body prosthetic. So we may see that it's people who need it, people who do have uh, certainly um, issues with the, their bodies as they are, whether it's from injury or disease, that may be a driving force. And I think the term, again, immortality, it's, it's, it can often be an off-putting term. But before you ever give a talk or go to any of these events, it's good to do a you know, check out who's putting it on and what their real directive is, because oftentimes they can be a little bit uh, gun shy of sneaky. <laughs> and it's not much fun to be there giving a talk or in the audience when that happens. I felt I felt kind of depressed and sort of disappointed. Oh, no, and, no, don't don't. And... It's they'll come around. There's always the naysayers, always the naysayers. And, uh, you know, you just wish them well and keep on going. You can't let mm-hmm. naysayers stand in the way of progress. Um, there'll be plenty of the next event. There'll be plenty of people who are cheering you on. So, you know, you just have to. It happens. I, I absolutely hope you're right, and, and I and I don't it, yeah. plan to give no, up anyway. I've, I've been in similar situation, I and can I know it. It's so hard. More. Yes, it's it's just so hard. I've been, especially in Europe. Um, about six years ago, I was spending a lot of time in Europe giving talks at different universities and conferences and events. And um, I would have people get very angry at me. And um, it can hurt your feelings, to be sure. But you just have to steer the course, you know, yes. and um, just be kind to them. They're just struggling with it. You know, change. Humans, we, ha- we, st- we struggle with change. You know, it's just have to. So, follow. Natasha. I know your time is very valuable, so let me ask you my last question, which is the traditional one that I always ask, and that is, what is the most important thing that people can take, or hopefully, from this conversation between you and me today? I think probably from our our discussion that solving problems doesn't necessarily require experts in science and experts in technology and experts in mathematics. What it requires is a sense of understanding and compassion and empathy, if you will, and strong design. I think that design often gets left out of the conversation because everyone thinks that if you're in mathematics or engineering or you know, science or technology, you're so much more capable or so much smarter, but there's just as many PhDs in these other fields. So I think that if we engage more of a transdisciplinarity in our thinking and look for even small problems that we can solve, then these small problems that we solve become bigger and bigger. And before we know it, we will have a very big issue of humanity that we solved. And hopefully that is 
our short lifespan. And hopefully that will be that we together as a team of, of thinkers and doers and creators can come up with new ways of seeing the issues that we face today and, and develop a better rationale, a better logic about it. And it is for visions like this that we flew over from <laughs> Toronto to come and speak to Dr. Natasha Vitamore. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah.